Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, suicidal ideation, assault, and rape that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Throughout the 1920s, America faced a stark cultural shift. The country moved from a conservative rural lifestyle to more lively urban consumer culture. Soon the time period became known as the Roaring Twenties. There is perhaps no bigger symbol of this era than the flapper. Flappers were young party girls who lived in cities and were known for their stylish fashion and outrageous independence. They wore their hair in a short bob and donned knee-length dresses with plunging necklines. Flappers were scandalous at the time, not only for their clothes, but also for their sexual freedom. These young women did not ascribe to America's rigid moral code. They drank, they danced, they smoked, and they partied just as hard as the men. Many more conservative-minded Americans thought these young women were dangerous to themselves and to society. Modern historians, however, consider flappers the first generation of independent American women. New York City's star faithful was a quintessential flapper. She was glamorous with movie star looks and a girlish charm. She loved to dance and drink and stayed out late with men, often unchaperoned. But there is a fine line between freedom and recklessness, and eventually star faithful crossed that line. She was found dead on June 8, 1931, still wearing her short, stylish dress from a few nights before. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the murder of Star Faithful. This week, we'll examine Star's party girl persona and the troubled private life she and her family kept hidden. Next week, we'll cover Star's mysterious death and how the case became a tabloid sensation. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Despite her bright, cheery name, Star Faithful's life was troubled from the start. She was born Star Wyman on January 26, 1906, in Evanston, Illinois. Her mother, Helen Pierce, came from old money, but did not inherit any of her family's fortune. Her father, Frank Wyman, was an unsuccessful investment broker who struggled to hold on to employment. Less than a year after Star's birth, Frank lost his job. The Wyman family was forced to move to Montclair, New Jersey, where Frank found work at a manufacturing firm. They could barely afford the small, furnished apartment they moved into. Nevertheless, Helen, at least, was grateful for the move. Montclair was much closer to her wealthy relatives who lived in and around Boston, Massachusetts. As soon as Star was old enough to walk, Helen took her up north to see them as often as she could. 
Helen's relatives took pity on Helen and Star, feeling guilty that Helen was penniless while they were still prospering. They often slipped the young mother some cash before she returned home. While she was grateful to her relatives for the help, Helen resented having to beg for scraps because her husband did not make enough. The marriage soured and Helen and Frank fought constantly, when he was home at least. We're barely able to put food on the table. What kind of father are you? Do you think I want this life? I work every day and this is all I have to show for it. Get a better job then. Like it's that easy. Why don't you get a job? Oh, please. I have to beg my family for money just so we can scrape by. You make it all sound so terrible here, Helen. Why don't you just run off then, hmm? Go out and find something better. You'd like that, wouldn't you? Then you wouldn't be responsible for me or our daughters. What are you talking about? I'm pregnant, Frank. So you better figure out how to get a better job. In nine months... You'll have three mouths to feed. On August 5th, 1911, Helen gave birth to a second baby girl, Elizabeth Wyman. Elizabeth went by her middle name, Tucker. Having a young baby in the house only increased the tension between Frank and Helen. With her home life deteriorating, Starr and Tucker were often looked after by Helen's relatives in Boston. Eventually, Helen moved to a small family home on Cape Cod, where she raised the girls as a single mother. Helen and her daughters began to rely more and more on their relatives' generosity. When it came time for Star to go to school, Helen's aunt convinced the family to all chip in for Star to go to a fancy private academy. In her early years at Miss Julia Park's school in Boston, Starr was a happy, precocious child who rarely got into trouble. With Frank more or less out of the picture, Helen trusted her 45-year-old cousin, Andrew J. Peters, as a sort of father figure for Starr. Andrew became mayor of Boston in 1917, and Helen thought he could be a good influence on Starr. Unfortunately, Helen's trust was misplaced. Starting in 1917, when Starr was only 11 years old, Andrew began sexually abusing Starr. He often took Starr on long road trips. In the hotel rooms he booked along the way, Andrew gave Starr ether and molested her. Although the abuse remained hidden, Starr's trauma began showing in different ways. In her teenage years, she became moody and introverted. A vast difference from the cheery, extroverted child she had been. She also began to dress differently, wearing masculine, oversized clothes to hide her body. Star became incredibly secretive, breaking off several friendships because the friends had asked her about her family. Not only were Star's relationships suffering, so was her schooling. Star had always been a voracious reader, but now she struggled to pay attention in class. Nevertheless, Starr completed her studies at Park School in 1921, when she was 15. That fall, Starr was sent to a prestigious finishing school 30 miles north of Boston called Rogers Hall. Unfortunately, Rogers Hall was not far enough away for Starr to escape Andrew Peters' abuse. Thank you so much for the invitation to dinner, Andrew. You have such a lovely home. Of course, Helen. What is family for? On that matter, actually, I have a question to ask you. I'll be traveling north for business, and I know Star's summer vacation is coming up, and I was wondering if I could pick her up for you. 
Oh, that's so sweet. Are you sure that wouldn't be a bother? She can be quite a handful. No, not a bother at all. In fact, if you don't mind, I was planning out a little road trip I could take Star on for the summer. Just you two? Yes, just the two of us on the open road. If you're sure you don't mind, I don't see a problem with it. Andrew and Star traveled alone together for two months, staying in over ten different hotels. Remarkably, none of this raised the suspicions of Star's mother, Helen. Likely due to the abuse she suffered, Star's performance at school continued to be erratic. She received mostly C's in classes and began to get into trouble with teachers. Her behavior was a cry for help, but unfortunately, no one noticed. In 1924, when Star turned 18, she decided to drop out of school altogether. She was only five months from graduating. Her family didn't question her decision. Everyone had written Star off as a difficult teenager and didn't try to get to the root of her issues. Star's mother, for one, was too busy with her own problems to worry about her daughter. On May 26, 1924... Helen was granted a decree of divorce in a courthouse near Boston. A few months later, she was engaged to a new man named Stanley Faithful, and on February 7, 1925, Helen and Stanley were married. Although the wedding was less than nine months after their mother's divorce, Starr was thrilled. Maybe this could finally be the fresh start that she had been looking for, a new father figure and a new home. Star now had the chance to reinvent herself. She could try to forget the abuse that seemed to follow her everywhere. Star's transformation began with her last name. Star Faithful. Isn't that a wonderful name? It sounds like a name from the movies. Tucker Faithful is almost as good, don't you think? Girls, he's your stepfather. You don't need to take his last name. If you're changing your name, why can't we? I could never go back to Star Wyman. Star was even more ecstatic when her mom and stepfather announced the family was moving to West Orange, New Jersey. At last, Star would be out of Andrew's reach. Maybe now she could finally start to heal. The faithful family moved into a small home in the center of the town. Despite the new surroundings, however, they struggled to make ends meet. Stanley Faithful was an entrepreneur, but most of his enterprises failed. Still, you would never guess that the family was short on cash from their lifestyle. Star especially appeared to live a very glamorous life. She often traveled to Manhattan and attended the city's hottest speakeasies, dressed in the latest fashion. She had blossomed into a beautiful young woman and loved the attention she got from men. But the happy face she put on at parties was just a facade. Deep down, Star was still haunted by her abuse. She often suffered erratic mood swings that caught everyone around her completely off guard. Here, Star. Try this one in blue. I haven't had a new dress in ages. Thank you, Mother. Well, you've gone through such a growth spurt. We had to do something before you burst right through the seams. No, this one won't do either. You're just too tall. Ugh, why don't you just say it? Star, what's the matter? You think I'm hideous, some kind of fat freak! What are you talking about? 
Star! Star! While some of these outbursts were simply confusing, others were downright frightening. At age 19, Star was voluntarily committed to a Boston-area mental hospital for nine days. Star hid the true reason for her mental anguish and instead made up a story of a failed romance to the hospital's doctors. When the psychiatrists released Star to her parents, they suggested that Star just needed a change of scenery. Does she ever tell you what was the matter, Doctor? She is so private with us. Uh, Something about a boy breaking her heart. You know how teenagers are. Is she more stable now? She gets in such moods. She frightens her younger sister at times. Yes, yes, she's much calmer. You know, with cases like these, I often recommend a trip of some kind. New sights and experiences can reset the brain in remarkable ways. She'll be like brand new, I promise. I hope so. She's just not the happy little girl she used to be. Helen and Stanley took the doctor's advice. A few weeks later, Star and her younger sister, Tucker, were booked onto a nine-week cruise. Tucker claimed that Star's behavior was still erratic during the trip, but Star was having the time of her life. The young woman fell in love with being on a cruise ship. Out in the open ocean, she felt like she could escape her troubles and just enjoy life. Unfortunately, Star could not run away from her problems forever. She would come face to face with her abuser once more. This time, Star wouldn't keep quiet. Coming up, Star Faithful reveals the truth. Robbing trains, rustling cattle. Pop culture usually depicts the Old West as an uncharted land with no rules. But how much of that is true? Now you can find the facts, learn the lore, and tackle the tallest of tales in the Spotify original from ParCast, Wild Wild West. Every Thursday on Spotify, settle up to the saloon to hear about the American frontier's most ruthless outlaws, and heroic gunslingers. Wild Wild West features a compilation of episodes from shows across ParCast Network and focuses on the legends that help shape American culture. From sharpshooters and explorers to family feuds and lost treasure, the West has a history more complex than you know. Don't be a yellow belly. Follow Wild Wild West free and only on Spotify. And now, back to our story. On June 29, 1926, 20-year-old Star Faithful's troubled life in West Orange, New Jersey, was further rattled by a phone call. On the other side of the line was 54-year-old Andrew J. Peters, who had secretly molested Star since she was a child. Of course, Star's mother, Helen, knew nothing about the abuse when she answered her home phone. Faithful residence. Helen? It's your cousin, Andrew. Oh, Andrew! It's been too long. You won't believe it, but I'm actually in town. I have an extra ticket to a show in Manhattan. I know Star adores theater, and I was hoping she could tag along with me. Oh, I'm sure she would absolutely love that. Great. I'll be sure to have her back by late this evening. 
despite Andrew's promise, Starr did not return to her home that evening after the show. Instead, Andrew claimed that the weather was too bad to travel back to West Orange and took Starr to his hotel. That night, Andrew raped Starr. When Starr returned to the Faithful's home the next day, she was practically catatonic. Her stepfather, Stanley Faithful, could tell right away that something was wrong. Star, there you are. How was the show? Fine. Star, you look flush. Is something wrong? I can't. Did something bad happen? <laughs> Star, please. What can I do? Star? <laughs> no one can do anything, Stanley. Coincidentally, Star's mother Helen was out visiting her cousin Andrew at his Manhattan hotel. As usual, she was asking for money as she and Stanley were having trouble paying the mortgage on their West Orange home. Andrew was not as helpful as Helen hoped, so she returned empty-handed and in poor spirits. But she couldn't help but notice her daughter seemed to be even worse off than her. Behind closed doors, Helen spoke with Star. For the first time, Star broke her silence about the abuse she faced at the hands of her cousin. Horrified, Helen learned that Andrew had molested her daughter repeatedly throughout her childhood. When Star was only 11 years old, Andrew started reading Star graphic sex manuals. Slowly, the abuse became more physical. Andrew often made Star sniff chloroform or ether to make her more compliant. When Andrew took Star on road trips, they always stayed in the same room, and these trips were where most of the abuse occurred. Helen was ashamed that she never sensed something was wrong. Andrew was a respected politician, so it never crossed her mind to question his motives. But now that she knew about the abuse, Star's erratic behavior throughout her youth suddenly made more sense. Helen and Stanley had no idea what to do with Star's revelation. They thought of going to the police, but they worried about Star becoming the center of a sex scandal. Because Andrew Peters was a notable figure, allegations of abuse would have made headlines. Star was traumatized and mentally could not handle such attention. Star was scheduled for a cruise to Europe that was leaving the next day. Helen and Stanley agreed that their daughter should go ahead with the trip as she needed time to recuperate. On July 1st, 1926, Starr boarded a Cunard cruise ship bound for London. She wouldn't return back to the United States for two months. While Starr was abroad, Stanley and Helen discussed what to do about Starr's mental state and how to deal with Andrew Peters. Well, she clearly needs to see a specialist. She's seen countless doctors already, and they weren't able to come to any sort of diagnosis. But now we know the root of her issues. That will surely help. You have to hope. I just don't want her to be scarred for life from this. I want her to have a normal life. A specialist could help her. Of course, I want the best for Star, but specialists are expensive. Where are we going to come up with that kind of money? I don't think we should have to come up with the money. Andrew should pay for any treatments. If you ask me, he should pay for a whole lot more than that. Compared to the Faithfuls, Andrew J. Peters was incredibly wealthy. 
and Helen and Stanley thought it was only just for Andrew to pay for Star's care. Star, meanwhile, was unable to stay out of trouble on her European cruise. She drank heavily and flirted with the men on board. She was stuck in a vicious circle. The only way she knew how to relieve her inner pain was to drink, but drinking led her to dangerous situations with men, thus reigniting her childhood trauma. One evening, she drank so much, she had to have her stomach pumped by the ship's surgeon, Dr. George Jameson Carr. As George nursed Star back to health, she grew infatuated with him. At first, George thought it was just an innocent crush, but Star visited him endlessly in his office during the rest of the cruise. She told George all about her life, including the abuse she had been through. George was concerned for Star, so he tried to stay cordial with her, even though he didn't return her feelings. Even still, Star continued to write love letters to George Carr for the rest of her life, often revealing her darkest secrets to the doctor. It is unclear whether the relationship was ever truly romantic. Star's sister Tucker claimed that Star and George were in an on-and-off relationship. George, meanwhile, maintained he never had any sort of romantic relationship with Star. He explained, You don't become romantic about a girl on whom you used a stomach pump the first time you saw her. Once Star returned home in the fall of 1926, she began to see a new psychiatrist, but it was expensive. Star's stepfather, in particular, was determined to get money out of Andrew for Star's treatment. In 1927, Stanley hired a lawyer to seek a settlement. Andrew denied any wrongdoing and claimed that his relationship with Star was never inappropriate. Stanley then hired a private eye who found evidence that Star was often booked in the same room as Andrew on their trips. While Stanley claimed to just be seeking reimbursement for Star's therapy, his tactics began to resemble blackmail. Andrew Peters was currently being considered as a candidate for Massachusetts governor and couldn't afford a scandal. So when Andrew's lawyer refused to settle for $25,000, Stanley wrote a terse letter in reply. I have definitely decided that the only thing to do is to take the matter up with the district attorney here. We are more interested in the moral than the financial aspect of the matter. We therefore wish to talk the matter over with a few prominent people in Boston who will not be biased in favor of Mr. Peters and then decide what to do. Stanley's tactics worked, and on June 30th, 1927, Andrew Peters agreed to pay the Faithfuls $25,000 on the condition that Starr, Stanley, and Helen signed non-disclosure agreements. $25,000 was a small fortune in 1927, the equivalent of over $360,000 today. While the settlement made the Faithfuls momentarily wealthy, Keeping Star happy was expensive. Over the next few years, Star saw multiple therapists and psychiatrists. In the end, the only thing that seemed to calm their daughter down were long European cruises. She went on six ocean voyages in three years. Not helping matters financially, Stanley barely worked. Ostensibly, he was a mattress salesman, but he made almost no money. Instead, the Faithfuls lived off Andrew's settlement and the generosity of Helen's relatives. Despite their money woes, the Faithfuls did not live a modest life. 
1929, they moved to a brownstone in Manhattan's Greenwich Village. The neighborhood was pretty swanky at the time. In fact, New York City's mayor lived only six doors down from the Faithfuls. Starr and her sister Tucker were thrilled to finally be living in the big city. Being closer to the center of the action, Starr partied even more than she used to. She would sometimes disappear for hours at a time and occasionally overnight. While Starr was finally out of Andrew Peters' grip, she couldn't seem to shake the tragedies of her youth. She often turned to the bottle in an effort to get the dark thoughts out of her head. It seemed like all the therapy in the world couldn't stop Starr's self-destructive tendencies. Starr gained a reputation as a socialite and drunk, especially on the Cunard cruise ship parties she frequented. She would often attend the Bon Voyage festivities on the ships before they departed, making a scene by over-drinking. Occasionally, she would drunkenly try to stow away in order to get a free trip to Europe. Starr had a thing for cruise ship workers, striking up relationships with several ship officers and doctors. She even started a fling with Dr. George Carr's former assistant, Dr. Raymond Lancaster. Raymond, who lived in London, suggested to Starr that she run away from home to join him in England. But when she did, Raymond broke up with her within days, stranding Starr in Europe. Desperate to get back home, Starr snuck into a ship heading to America. She knew George was working on board and could help her. Starr? What are you doing here? I told you, you can't stow away like this anymore. I had no other choice, George, I swear. Well, you'll need to buy a ticket or you'll be removed. Please, George, you don't understand. I'm stuck here. I have no money. I'm begging you. This is my only option. It's either this or I jump overboard. (sighs) Get off your knees, Star. There's no need to beg. I'll pay your fare, but I expect your parents to repay me. Oh, thank you, George. Thank you. As the years went by, Star's relationships with men did not get any better. One psychiatrist suggested that Star needed sex therapy so that she could have a better association to sex and therefore men in general. The method of this therapy was a bit unorthodox, but Helen and Stanley were desperate to help Star in any way. They could tell that she was spiraling out of control, so, following the doctor's advice, Star's parents hired a local artist as a sex tutor. Star, meanwhile, had no idea that she was being tutored. Instead, she thought she was having a genuine relationship with the man. Instead of helping, it only led to more heartbreak and more trouble for Star. On March 30, 1930, police were called to a Manhattan hotel where they found an unconscious naked woman passed out on a bed. With her was a man who claimed to be her husband. The woman was Star Faithful, and the man was definitely not her husband. Star woke up in Bellevue Hospital where doctors diagnosed her with acute alcoholism. She was covered in bruises and could not remember the name of the man she had been with. Helen and Stanley were distraught that nothing they tried to do seemed to help their daughter. Star's behavior was becoming more and more reckless, and her actions would prove to be dangerous. Her fire was burning too fast, and soon it would be snuffed out. A 
Coming up, we'll examine the events leading up to Star Faithful's untimely death. And now, back to our story. May 29, 1931, was an unseasonably hot day in Manhattan, New York. 25-year-old Star Faithful braved the sweaty crowds at Chelsea Piers and boarded a Cunard cruise ship named the RMS Franconia. She did not have a ticket. As she made her way up the gangplank, she looked all around for any sign of her longtime crush, Dr. George Jameson Carr, who worked as a Cunard ship surgeon. As she wandered the boat's deck, she bumped into the assistant cruise director, Francis Peabody Hamlin. Star was on cruises so frequently that Francis immediately recognized her. After exchanging pleasantries, Star asked Francis to take her to see George in his office on board. He warily obliged, knowing that Star often caused a lot of drama on the cruises she attended. A few hours later, Francis saw Star wandering the hallways looking distraught. Star, are you okay? Oh, Francis, Dr. Carr refused to see me. He's probably just busy. He may have a patient. I feel awfully faint. Could you get me some brandy to steady my nerves? I'm not sure that's a good idea. Everyone thinks I'm a nuisance, especially Dr. Carr. I should just throw myself overboard. Don't be foolish. Come on. I'll find you some brandy, okay? At 5 p.m., the ship departed the docks. The captain didn't realize he had a stowaway on board. Starr, meanwhile, visited George Carr's consultation office once again. George knew Starr was not supposed to be on board and scolded her. Distraught, Star ran off to hide, determined to conceal herself until it was too late for the ship to turn around. George reported to an officer that they had a stowaway on board, prompting an all-hands search of the boat. Star was found within minutes, drunk and crying in the corner of a hallway. A tugboat reached the ship about ten minutes later, and Star was escorted onto it. She drunkenly fought with the crew as they carried her onto the boat. Don't! Touch me! Stop! Don't you understand? I have to get to London! I have to! Ma'am, you have no ticket, you have no passport. You wouldn't be allowed into England even if you got there. I'll work! I'll clean dishes, anything! Ma'am, if you don't come with us, we'll have to carry you. I'm not coming! Ma'am, stop (laughs) resisting! Kill me! Throw me overboard! I can't go back! Star continued to shout and cry as the tugboat reached the shore. Once on land, she was thrown into a taxi and returned to her family home in Greenwich Village. As Star stumbled into the house, her parents somehow didn't notice that Star had been drinking. While Star's family was concerned about her hard partying ways, they were easily duped. Star had become a great liar and a master at hiding her drinking. On June 3rd, Star once again made up a story about where she was headed. She claimed that she was attending an artist's party with Francis Hamlin. According to Star, several famous movie and theater stars would be in attendance. No such party ever occurred. The next day, Star continued her fabrication, saying she was again going out with Francis. She claimed that they met at the Savoy Plaza Hotel. Francis later maintained that he never met Starr privately in his life. 
Starr's lies were a cover-up for a secret rendezvous she was having with Dr. Charles Young Roberts, a cruise ship surgeon. Charles took Starr to a speakeasy where Starr asked for Charles' help running away from home. She also took advantage of the free-flowing alcohol. Although they weren't good at seeing through Starr's lies, Starr's family still worried about her behavior. Every time she returned home, they could smell she had been drinking. Star, would you like to see a movie with Mother and I later? There's supposed to be an excellent one playing at the Roxy. I've already agreed to meet Francis at 9.45. Where are you meeting this boy? At his hotel. Star, that's hardly proper. I really wish you wouldn't go out tonight. And why shouldn't I? You don't hide the smell of booze as well as you think, Star. You know what I've been through, sister. It's not an excuse for being a drunkard. Ah, enough. I'm putting my foot down. You are not leaving this house. You can't make me stay. Star, just listen to Mother. No, I'll do whatever I like. Tucker went so far as to reset all the clocks in the home in an effort to mess with Star's date. She hoped that if her sister showed up too late, the man she was meeting would give up and leave. Unfortunately, Tucker's scheme didn't work. On June 5, 1931, Star left home at 9.30 a.m. wearing a paisley Lord & Taylor dress and a stylish hat. Her stepfather, Stanley, gave her $3 to get her hair waved. Just before closing the front door, Star told her mother she would be home by early evening. After leaving the house, Star headed straight to Chelsea Piers, where all of the Cunard ships were docked. At around 1 p.m., Star and a man in a Cunard uniform, whom she called Brucey, entered a cab near the docks that drove them to the faithful's address. We're here. Okay, Star, time to go. I don't want to go home. Star. Okay, Brucey, fine. I'll see you at four, Brucey. On the wharf? Don't come back to the dock, Star. Whoever this Brucey was, Star did not listen to him. At around 2 p.m., the same cab driver picked Star up again from the Cunard docks. Star seemed drunk. This time, Brucey was even more adamant that Star not return. Good to see you again, sir. Where are we taking her this time? Same place. Got it. Brucey, please. Don't let her come back here. Once again, Star did not listen. When the cab driver dropped her off at her apartment, she did not enter her house. Instead, she began to walk in the direction of the piers. She walked several blocks to a hair salon in Grand Central Station, where she asked to get an appointment to have her hair waved. The clerk scheduled Star for later that afternoon, but she never showed up. A few hours later, Star was back at Chelsea Piers. At around 5 p.m., she went aboard the RMS Carmania, looking for Dr. Charles Young Roberts. Charles met with Star in his private quarters. After much pleading, Charles gave Star a little brandy. Star and the doctor had a small dinner, and Star left the boat willingly at around 10 p.m. As she stepped into a taxi, she told Charles that she was going to head to a Bon Voyage party on a nearby ship. Star was not seen for the rest of that evening. Her family was worried sick. 
Star had promised she would be back well before dark. On June 6th, Stanley reported Star missing to the local police station. How can I help you, sir? I would like to report my daughter missing. Well, a stepdaughter, technically. How long has she been missing? Since yesterday morning. Just yesterday? Yes, but it's highly unusual. Hmm. What's her age? Twenty, as of January. Uh, I don't think you have anything to worry about, sir. She's... she's probably out with a boyfriend or something. She's not that kind of girl. She's never stayed out overnight before? Never. Well, occasionally. But I'd still like to report it. I'll make a note of it for the Missing Person Bureau. But I should tell you, nothing will be done about it for a couple of days at least. I really don't think you have anything to worry about. Girls that say stay out overnight all the time. Despite reassurances from police, Stanley was right to worry. Just two days later, Star Faithful would be found dead. Her body washed up on a beach in Long Island, New York. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Star Faithful, where we'll dive into Star's mysterious death and explore who may have been responsible for the crime. For more information on Star Faithful, amongst the many sources we used, we found the passing of Star Faithful by Jonathan Goodman extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders is written by Matt Hartman, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Brian Green, Cameron Nicod, Albert Park, Rebecca Thomas, and Jen Wong. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hey, partners, it's Carter from Parkast. You've probably heard stories about outlaw Jesse James, sharpshooter Annie Oakley, and the horrors of the Donner Party. But how much of what you've heard is actually true? Find out on my new series, Wild Wild West, where I head out on the frontier to find the facts, learn the lore, and tackle the tallest of tales. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Wild Wild West, every Thursday, free, and only on Spotify. Spotify.